would turn to Exodus chapter 5. That's where we are today. Just a reminder, we're going to close the registration uh, this week by Wednesday, which is tomorrow, uh, on the Dan Wallace event. So if you haven't signed up, that chance is there for you. Uh, we have, I think, about 176 people who've signed up, so that's great, good attendance, uh, and looking forward to having him here. So again, uh, you can register via our website. It's free. Love to have you. Well, we're in Exodus chapter 5, and we have seen uh, this encounter with, uh, well, chapter 4 closes with Moses meeting with the elders. You remember, they, they worshiped the Lord. It's kind of a, after that horrific situation with uh, uh, Zipporah, and we looked at that last week. I've had a couple people email me and say, was that really in the scriptures? <laughs> you got to be kidding. Yep, it is. So uh, chapter 5, verse 1, we go back to the storyline, the reason Moses went to Egypt, and that is to meet Pharaoh, and we have our first encounter. What you expect would happen... I guess in one way, does not. At least for Moses, it doesn't happen the way he intends. He's expecting Pharaoh to say, yeah, let him go. It doesn't happen. And we see, in fact, at, at the end of chapter 5, Moses is, is shaking his fist at God and saying, what are you doing? This is not what I intended. And God pulls out a, a soft paddle and in, in eight verses reminds Moses, I am. It's a powerful text. So let's dig into it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron, uh, Moses' sidekick, went to Pharaoh and said, Thus saith the Lord, and the God of Israel. Now remember in chapter 3, we're going to look at that this morning. In verse 18, God said, This is exactly what you are going to tell. Remember, Moses has claimed he has a trouble talking you know, public speaking. And so Moses has been reminded by God, This is exactly what you're going to say. <laughs> And we're going to look at this. Release my people, they state, so that they may hold a pilgrim feast to me in the desert. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey by releasing Israel? Remember, Pharaoh, in one way, is a manifestation of God for the Egyptians. <laughs> who is this God? He's not Ra. He's not Osiris. I don't know who you're talking about. I do not know this Lord. You will. You will watch, Mr. Pharaoh. And I will not release Israel. And they said, the God of the Hebrews has not, uh, has not met with us, or has met with us. Let us go a three-day journey into the desert so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God so that he does not strike us with the plague or the sword. How intriguing, because he is a group of people, and that's the Egyptians. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you cause the people to refrain from their work. That's how he views the Israelites. They are his slaves. And ironically, when this text ends, and we're going to watch, that's how the Israelites view themselves. They are the servants of Pharaoh. This has been going on for generations, right? At least a couple. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the slave masters and foremen. It's a two-tier process, and we have historical evidence that dem clearly demonstrates that. The foremen would have been Egyptians. The taskmasters were the Hebrews, similar to uh, some of the concentration camps during the World War II. You, you had the overseers and then some of the, the local Israelis, or excuse me, the Jewish um, uh, people within their own community were the ones that were serving as, as the foremen. You must no longer give straw to the people for making bricks, 
as before, let them go and collect straw for themselves, but you must require of them the same quota of bricks. That's going to be repeated six times in this text. The quota that they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they are slackers. I love the net rendering here. They're lazy bums, right? Uh, that is why they're crying, let us go sacrifice the Lord. Let the work be harder for the men so that they must keep at it and pay no attention to lying words. All right? So the Pharaoh is saying absolutely not. In fact, this is where it gets intriguing. All right? I like to do something here. We've got a second. You, you got the, this text before you. I like to compare what God instructed Moses ch in chapter 3, verses 18, with what Moses tells Pharaoh at the beginning. Not, he, he, there's two interactions that Moses and Aaron have with Pharaoh. But the first one, there in, in verse 1, and, and, and here's chapter 3, verse 18 on the screen, so you don't have to flip back. But what are the differences? There's even a gap there in your notes that you can write this in. What are the differences? God told Moses to say this. Moses tells Pharaoh this. What do you see? Good insight, Dan. Uh, <clears throat> in the Hebrew, it's really screaming. Uh, in fact, Moses, it, God tells Moses in chapter 3, you, you want to say, let us go. It, it, it's, it's one of, of um, a, a gracious request from a, someone that's inferior to someone who's superior. However, in chapter 5, verse 1, what does Moses come out with? He comes out with a command. You will do this. All right, so yeah, number one, it's, uh, it's not soft-pedaled at all, which is intriguing. The Lord asked Moses to be diplomatic. Moses is not diplomatic in round one. In round two, he is in chapter five, which is intriguing. <laughs> uh, the first time didn't work. Oh yeah, the Lord told me to say it this way. Well, by now it's too late. Pharaoh's ticked. What else? What else do you see? Yeah, there's no three-day event, is there? Now, it comes up later in chapter 5, but this first go-around, there's nothing about going out for three days out into the wilderness. Uh, in fact, all he talks about is a festival. It wasn't uncommon for the Egyptians to give a holiday for religious observance, even for slaves. So Moses' request is not the second time he appears before Pharaoh, saying that we'd like a three-day journey so that we can sacrifice. That's what God told Moses to say in the first place. That's not an unreasonable request in Egyptian culture. But the first time, Moses doesn't say, all he says is when we go out for a festival. Who, who did God say is to go to Pharaoh? Elders with Moses and Aaron. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Do you see elders anywhere? No. They're absent. What else do you see? What did the Lord say? The Lord, the God of the Hebrews. What does it state in, in chapter 5? The Lord, the God of what? Israel. That's a people group. Israel's a nation. There, Moses comes out with his fangs with Pharaoh. 
Uh, one commentator, it's in your notes there, Hamilton, the difference between the two is obvious. God's language is courteous and diplomatic. Moses' language is abrasive, and it's in your face. Isn't that interesting? I've read this text I don't know how many times, and you start studying, you realize, oh my goodness, there, there are some vast differences. When you study parallel texts in the Bible, if you're looking at the Gospels, all right, and you're reading John's Gospel, you want to, John's a little more difficult, but let's say you're looking at Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is going to appear in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You want to look at the parallel text and see the differences. That's, that's vital to what's going on, uh, and that's the case here. There's another thing that's missing in the Hebrew. When God instructs Moses, he tells him to use the word please, be gracious, and, and that's also absent in chapter 5, verse 1. All right, so all of this comes screaming through the text as we see um, here. Oh, and he'll even argue it in chapter 6, that he, he's one who has trouble speaking. Chapter 6, verse 12. Yes. How ironic. Remember, I, I, I do think, personally, I think Moses had a problem Probably, he probably stuttered. Um, there seems to be some type of speech deficiency that he has. But that's not the issue, is it? God's called him. He's going to do it. He can use a, We talked about this. If he can use a stick of wood as a rod, he, he can use a, a guy who can't speak eloquently. Uh, and again, I think of Chuck Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll had a stuttering problem. <laughs> you know, and to me, he's the golden tongue. Uh, he's, he's a master of words. We, we talked about that, and I, I think that's part of it, yes. But, um, but here, it's Moses and Aaron who are both speaking. They're speaking collectively. But God had said, take the elders with you as well. Why? The elders would have had some respect with Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't know who Moses was text tells us the, the Pharaoh who did know him died right so and Moses didn't rehearse his history of, of growing up in the palace that's none of that's stated here and if I, I believe this is the Pharaoh of Amenhotep II uh, he's removed quite uh, a ways from Moses and his upbringing well, let's go on. Let's look at this text then and see, Mo, and see Pharaoh's response. We've, we've looked at, at Moses. Pharaoh's response in verse 2 where he says, Who is this Lord? Uh, scholars have interpreted this two different ways. One is it, it could be arrogance. Who does he think he is? I'm Pharaoh. That's one way. Or it could be ignorance. I have no idea who this God is, this God of the Hebrews. Right? I know who my gods are. I don't know who that is. Uh, either option is viable in the text. But in the middle of that paragraph, I write, either way, Pharaoh's words raise a central question to this book. And that's key. Who is the Lord? Right? That's what you're going to see through the plagues. Almost all of those plagues are directly linked with a god of the Egyptians. Frogs. Right? And God's saying, I am God. It's a problem the Israelites have in the wilderness. Who is the Lord? This golden calf? No, God, right? Interestingly, a later rabbinic writing, the Jerusalem Targum, which is probably around 450 AD, all right, so it's late, I know that. They interpret 
Pharaoh's response is the following. It's there in your notes. I have not found the name of the Lord in the book of the angels. I'm not afraid of him, nor will I release Israel. In other words, they interpret it as one of ignorance. I don't know who he is, but it doesn't matter. I'm Pharaoh. I don't know who this guy is. Right? Either way, there is a cosmic tension going on, isn't there? Pharaoh claims that he is head of all peoples in this land, including the Israelites. He's the one who restricts. We talked about this. You, you can't have babies, etc., etc. And God says, no, I am their God. They are my son, and I've told them to multiply. And they're going to serve me, not you. And this tension is going on, isn't it? This battle. In your notes there, Larson and his bound for freedom. It's a great work on the Exodus. He said, the critical issue to be settled is nothing less than who is in charge. Who has the authority over the people of Israel and ultimately over all nations and all of creation? Listen, that is the basic problem of humanity, <laughs> isn't it? On an individual level as well as a corporate level. You're not going to hear it, which is sad, but in a presidential debate, it should be who serves God best? <laughs> who's in charge, right? Uh, Trump and Hillary have their own opinion on who's in charge. The God of Israel or the gods of Egypt manifest in Pharaoh. And by the way, isn't that a great comfort to know? <laughs> I was talking to uh, Pam Russell, who serves as the chaplain for the women for the Capitol Commission down in downtown Indy at the State House. And I said, how are things with your ministry right now? It has to be chaotic. She said, it's exciting. She says, it's absolutely exciting to see what God's doing. I said, well, you know. She said, it's all right. God's in charge. And we're excited. He is on the throne. That's who we serve. Isn't that great? Well... Moses, as we just stated, he soft pedals the second pitch to, to Pharaoh, and it sounds a lot more like what we saw in chapter 3, verse 18, but by now it's too late. And by the way, it's not too late because God already said that Pharaoh was going to do what? He wasn't going to let him go. So nothing, nothing is, it's all happening just as the Lord intended. There's one, to me, one little sticky wicket in all of this, and this three days to go, because it seems a rather deceptive, doesn't it? We didn't talk about this last week, but God told Moses to tell Pharaoh, you're going to go on a three-day journey. Well, they had no intention of returning. So how do you reconcile this, right? So let me just, this is there in your notes, but let me just throw these before you. One, it's a veiled request. In other words, it was veiled because um, they never spelled out fully that they were going to depart permanently. <laughs> this is kind of a bit of a disguise, a ruse. Uh, another argument is, hey, it's an uh, ungodly ruler who's against the things of the Lord, and thus you are legitimate to be dishonest with him. Uh, this argument is used by many Christians during World War II, hiding Jews, etc. So this is an argument that's, that's put forth in this text is often cited as evidence, hey, you know, I serve God, not man. So whatever that takes. Another view is there's no mention of returning. Uh, he wasn't dishonest. He just never mentioned it. Um, and again, I mentioned that this fits within the Egyptian culture, and that's cited there in your notes by Kitchen, who talks about this um, from the brick, 
fields of Egypt. It's a great article. It was written in 1976, but he, he talks about brick making, etc. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, it could be a test for Pharaoh. And this one I find intriguing. Um, it's to see how Pharaoh is going to respond. Are you going to be gracious and respond to the Lord's leading? Or are you going to bristle? Because if you're going to bristle, then there's going to be real problems for you, Pharaoh. I'll let you wrestle with that. Any <laughs> thoughts or comments? I lean towards the last one. Uh, David, another, another question for you along that. Is the three days of dimension focusing on duration or is it distance away from Egypt? That's a great question as well, and scholars debate on that. Is, is this a... Uh, are, are we going to be gone for three days or we need to travel for three days? Many scholars land, it's a three-day, we're going to be gone for three days. We're going to take, you know, so that, that is debated. Well, I think there's some patterns with Moses. I think he's a strong type A personality. Uh, I think that's why he comes out of as a bullet in China shop with Pharaoh from the get-go, uh, he has, right, He's, he killed a taskmaster, he strikes a rock twice. I mean, he is a leader, whether you like it or not. Um, but the distinction here between Moses' interaction with Jethro, the question was, well, it's the same as here. No, because in this event, the three days, God told Moses to tell Pharaoh it's three days. That's not the situation with Jethro. Yeah. I'm going to put Dick on the spot. He was a general in the Vietnam War, so this guy ought to know. Well, you were eventually, right, you general? Yes, uh, he's being modest. Uh, Dick is one fine fellow. I love his insight. I love your insight on the military aspects, and I, I think that that very well could be. Um, some scholars argue when Moses asked this, and that's part of the second, uh, or excuse me, the the third, re no mention of returning, is the idea that there is, Pharaoh knows what Moses is asking. We're not coming back. So that could be in there too, but I don't see that because Pharaoh is concerned that he's not going to have laborers for three days, right? That his workforce is going to diminish. So I think he's assuming they're coming back. Well, I'll let you wrestle with that. Uh-huh. Uh, a great Bible study asks a lot of questions, <laughs> raises questions. I'm sorry? I do. A test for Pharaoh. Who's testing who? Because God already knows what Pharaoh's going to do, doesn't he? I mean, it's already the second. Yeah, but that's... It's a test for Pharaoh, how Pharaoh's going to respond. But I mean, that's true for us, is it not? He already knows how he's going to respond, so where's the test? Well, James 1, right? We're put through test as well for our faith. God knows the outcome. He knows what we're going to do. But he puts us to the test to see how we're going to do, I would argue. I don't know. At the end of the day, this is there in your notes, verse, uh, page 2, the Exodus was a display of God's power. Israel was released solely because, and this is key, was because of the power of God and not because of any generosity on the Egyptians' part or because of any heroics on the Hebrews' part, right? 
Moses isn't going to do it. He's deficient, and Pharaoh is not going to do it. They're both deficient in leading the people. And that's there in your notes. Well, I wish I could give more answer with the three days. Um, and it is something to really wrestle with, especially uh, if persecution should ratchet up in this country. How do we as Christians respond? And this is a text to really think through down the road. Well, not answering that question, let me move. Look at the text, and this tomb has something very significant in right of what we're going to read here. Let's go back to the text, verse 10. So the slave masters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people. Thus saith Pharaoh, I am not giving you straw. You go get the straw for yourselves wherever you can. Find it, because not a thing will be re reduced from your workload. There it is again. So the people spread out through all the land of Egypt to collect stubble for straw. The slave masters were pressuring them, saying, complete your work. Why? Because watch what happens. The Israelite foremen, whom Pharaoh's slave masters had set over them, were beaten. Your workers don't do it, we'll beat you. Right? This domino effect. Because you're not supplying. Verse 15, the Israelite foreman went out and cried out to Pharaoh, why are you treating your servants this way? No straw is given to your servants, but we are told, make bricks. Your servants are even being beaten. And we'll get to this in a minute, but it says, in, uh, fault with your people. I will go on. But he said, you are slackers, slackers. There it is again. We saw that in verse 8. That's his Pharaoh's view of the Egyptians. They're a lazy lot is how he stereotypes the, them. And he said, let us go sacrifice the Lord. So now get back to work. You will not be given straw. You must produce your quota of bricks. And when the Israelite foremen saw this, they knew we are in trouble. Right? And they went out from Pharaoh. They encountered Moses and Aaron standing there to meet them. <laughs> you think, why were you standing there? Right? And they said to them, may the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the opinion of Pharaoh and the opinion of his servants, so that you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Brick making in the Egyptian culture, there's tons of testimony of it. Uh, years ago, I was able to go to this tomb. It's the Rachmaneh's tomb. It's from the 1400s, the time I date the Exodus. And the significance of this is on one of the walls is this depiction of brick making, which is really interesting. These slaves are making bricks. Now, I want to read to you what is entailed in making bricks, because I want you to get an idea. Uh, this, is, this is not an easy endeavor. And in fact, uh, being out in the sun all day, there are Egyptian records of servants dying from the heat, the sheer exhaustion. And so uh, this is intriguing. This was in How to Make Mud Bricks. Mix topsoil and water to create a thick mud. Add straw. Uh, and, and what does the straw do? It gives it body. It gives it, uh, holds it together. And I think I mentioned this. So we can go to the New York Met. And if I took you to a side room, a little room, they have some bricks down in a, it's just a lower case. Kind of a, a rather obscure. But it's interesting. They're in time of Israel's history, and at one point they get very small, and they're poorly done, and the straw is absent. It's very intriguing. It said, knead the mud mixture with your bare feet for four days, all right? Now, I, I don't know if you've been to Egypt. It is hot, hot, and hot. It makes Houston look like the North Pole. It's awful. 
Once it is fermented after four days, leave the mixture alone for a few days. Knead the mixture again on the day you plan to form your mud bricks. Pour the mud mixture into molds. And you can see the molds even in here. And then you see a guy at the lower level carrying, carrying the bricks after the mold is made. All right? So this is, this is a drooling process. And it's there in your notes, as I mentioned this, of what does it entail that they have to do. And what is depicted, and here's a picture of uh, some modern mud uh, making of bricks in Egypt. And you can see, uh, John, how would you like to construct buildings with these bricks, right? Uh, these are not put in a fire in an, in an oven. They're, they're dried in the sun and then used for construction. And again, it's mentioned there in your notes, but I want to read to you Voss. I want you to see this paragraph he says, it does not take, and Voss has done quite a bit of work on mud brick making in Egypt. He says, it doesn't take much imagination to conclude that the severe rigor imposed on the Hebrews resulted in many of them dying of dehydration, heat prostration, heat stroke, and the like. No wonder they're upset with Moses. Look what you've done. It's bad enough we have to make bricks. Now we have to get our own supplies and and and." And notice it says stubble, so they, they don't get the, the first cuttings. <laughs> they get what's left after the cuttings. In your notes under letter C, I mentioned throughout their appeal to Pharaoh, the Israelites, it's, it's, they've been slaves so long, that's how they see themselves. Three times they state, we are your servants, Pharaoh. Isn't that amazing? The last chapter, the elders were worshiping the Lord and praising Him over this deliverance. Right? Crowds are fickled. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter. And one commentator, Riken, in his commentary on Exodus, he says the Israelites were so used to being in bondage they could not think of themselves as anything but that. Rather than seeking to be free, they went back to negotiating the terms of their captivity. Isn't that amazing? You are God's people. God's promised He would release you after the death of Joseph. Remember that? Oh, I forgot it. Right? <clears throat> well, let's go back to the text. How does Moses respond when the cart is capsized and the wheel falls off his tricycle? He says, in verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people. Wow. What's he really saying? Partly that, or why have you caused trouble for me? <laughs> me, right? I was called to do this, and this is not going well. Why did you ever send me, there it is, from the time I went to speak to Pharaoh in your name? Isn't that interesting? He says, I spoke. Wait a minute, you're the one who said you couldn't speak. Right? <clears throat> now he's going to take full responsibility. Because, Lord, I stuck my neck out on this. And look what's happened. You have caused trouble. Whoa. Or he has caused trouble, Pharaoh has, for the people. And you have certainly not rescued your people. <clears throat> it's interesting. In this confrontation that Moses, is ha Moses has with the Lord, what does he accuse the Lord of? There's two major things. What are they? Well, he certainly has misled, which means uh, one is God has lied. 
You, you made these promises. They've not occurred. What's the other? You've caused trouble for the people. Well, that, now they have no stroll. And it's your fault, God. Right? <clears throat> Why have you done this? Uh, a great study is to look at giants of the faith in Scripture. Time and time again, they'll go to the Lord with the tough questions. Right? They don't run from the Lord. They go to the Lord. And we talked about that when we looked at Psalm 13 where David says, Hey, God, where are you in all this? How much longer am I going to have to endure? Um, the Lord welcomes the tough questions. He really does. I'm adamant at that. Um, rather than shake your fist and run from God, run to Him with those tough questions. He can handle it. He's a big boy. <laughs> and notice how God, God does not rebuke Moses. He rebuked him on Sinai. He doesn't rebuke him here. Notice what the Lord says. Watch this. This is beautiful. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. He will start with I am. He will end with I am. And he repeats it throughout this section. It all hinges on that. It's, it's what I told you, Moses, on Mount Sinai. I am Yahweh. I am God. And I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac. Have we seen this? How many times have we seen this? All right? I'm the covenantal God. But my name, the Lord, I was not known to them. You say, whoa, whoa, what do you mean you weren't known to the patriarchs? They, they didn't know him like you were going to know him, Moses, and the Israelites, because you're going to see unbelievable things happen, and you're going to have the law that's going to be given to you in just a few chapters down in Exodus. I also established my covenant... <clears throat> with them to give them the land of Canaan in which they were living as resident aliens. I have also heard the groaning of the Israelites. Hey, I'm fully aware. I told you that, Moses. Whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. God gives no explanation to Moses. I don't owe you one. The only explanation I'm going to give you is I am. Right? Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the, the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from the hard labor they impose. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. I will take you to myself for a people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. It's repeated again. It's another bookend, another what they call inclusio. It starts with the covenant, and he ends with his covenant, and then watch what he says. I am the Lord. Wow. What a text. As you look at this, and you're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is huge. As we look at this. I mentioned this in your notes there, this inclusio. Uh, around the I am, this is on page three. Did... Did the Lord tell Moses anything new in these verses in chapter 6? No. It's what he told him. There's no new revelation. If anything, all, all that God is doing with Moses right now is, let me remind you who I am. I think it's Psalm 13. David, it's on border of blasphemy. You know, why, Lord, don't you care? Why have you done all this? And then he says, oh, wait, I've seen your hand in the past and I trust I don't know about you, but there's times in life where you're going, Lord, this doesn't make sense. (laughs) 
Maybe you're in that moment. Maybe it's been ongoing uh, journey where you're going, Lord, these things don't match up, but I've seen your hand back here and I trust. And the Lord says to Moses, let me remind you three things about me. And this is there in your notes. That he, this is the second paragraph on page three, that he, that is the Lord, revealed himself to the fathers. He made a covenant with the fathers and he knows the current persecution. What does that tell us about God? What does it tell us about God? What do we see here? When he says that I am the one who's revealed myself to the fathers, I'm the one of a covenant, and I know the situation of the Israelites. What does that tell us about God? His sovereignty. sovereignty. What else? Yes. Aware of our troubles. His consistency. He's a promise keeper. Right? All of these things. Anything else? And and, and notice, he tells us, he tells Moses three things he's going to do for the Israelites. That's there in your notes. He will deliver them. He will become their God. And he will give them the land. It's not a new God that's come onto the scene. (laughs) It's the same God that spoke to the fathers. In Hebrews 13, we serve that same God. Right? He's not changed. The guy who parted a Red Sea, he's still your, (laughs) he's the same God we call Father. There in your notes, the, the Lord did not reveal new revelation, as I just stated, nor does he offer Moses an explanation for why they're going to be an additional suffering for the Israelites, nor did he attempt to justify himself. He simply states, I am. I am God. Even Pharaoh, this is there in your notes, even Pharaoh's hard-hearted refusal was part of the plan of salvation. God was setting things up so that Pharaoh would not only let God's people go, he would help drive them out. The all-wise and all-powerful God has everything under control. Isn't that right? Um, Moses had an idea of how this plan was going to unfold, and the Lord said, oh, no, no. I, I have trouble Moses being that Moses is shocked because God already told Moses, Pharaoh is not going to let him go. This isn't going to go well. I've already told, you know, I've already told you this, Moses, but then I only look at my own life. It's like, Lord, no, this should be easy. If I follow you, I do these X, Y, and Z. Everything should unfold just as we've planned. And the Lord says, no, not always. The adversity, the affliction, that's all part of it. It's part of the equation, and it's a reminder that I am in charge. The Israelites, if, if Pharaoh had let the Israelites go right away, said, yeah, fine, you leave, I'm sick of you, you're a lazy lot anyways, then the Israelites would have missed out on so much of seeing God's powerful hand, right? And the Egyptians would have missed out and seeing, yes, this is the God of the universe, not the frogs or the cats or whatever we worship. Affliction is, is, is uh, never absent from God's plan. James 1 uh, and ultimately the cross. It's part of the redemptive story. You're right. Thanks, Dick. Well, let me leave you with three things to hang on your beak uh, as you walk today uh, from this. Failure to acknowledge and honor the Lord will result in exalting oneself. 
Riken, in his commentary on Exodus, makes a very powerful statement, and it's worth getting up early this morning just to read it. It is hardly surprising for someone who's pursuing selfish ambition, indulging in sexual sin, or living for material gain to still have doubts about Jesus Christ. Disobedience has a way of perpetuating ignorance. What's he saying? <laughs> if you're pursuing things that are of self, God's who he is becomes very clouded, or at least our perspective of him, doesn't it? That's why God breaks through with Moses and says, no, I am. This is who I am. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off your problem and get your eyes on me. I am God. Isn't that great? I am God. Romans chapter 1, and that's the whole, God gives them up, right? And so what do they do? They create their own gods. <laughs> you know, only look in the mirror, right? That's your God uh, at the end of the day. Well, that's too convicting. Let's move on. Number two, as followers of Christ, we need to ask the Lord to grant us patience in seeing God's big picture rather than complaining or arguing about his timetable. This follows on the heels of letter A, but we just need to allow the Lord to be the Lord, don't we? He's in charge. I, I, that's why I love about what Pam Russell said uh, on Sunday to me, saying, hey, you know, I'm excited. Why? Because she's got a good picture of the Lord. He's in charge. We should be some of the happiest people around. Trust me, this is, I have a good friend who's a Palestinian. In fact, he's still involved in the PLO. And you say, how can he be a believer and be involved in that? Well, he uses that as a vehicle for leading people to Christ. Um, but Zach, my friend who's a Palestinian Christian, <coughs> said, there isn't a better time to share Christ to Muslims because their whole world is unraveled. And he said, they're listening. They're, they're looking for answers. He said, it's just great. Romans chapter 9, if you would turn there, this whole discussion that Paul is laying out on what does it mean to be declared righteous, he, he gets to chapter 9 and, and part of it is you, you can hear the other side arguing, saying, why would I believe that Jesus is the only way and that this is how you are justified when Israel rejected him? And of all the things that Paul does, he goes back to Exodus. And, and he says in chapter 9, verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustices with God? Absolutely not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Isn't that great? And the whole context is the text we just read back in Exodus. And Paul appeals to that to say, hey, God is God. And, and in his grace, he's allowed us as Gentiles to be brought into this equation. And then finally, the last of these, and I mentioned this just earlier, Hebrews 13, that he is the all-powerful and uh, consistent and faithful God. The same one who Moses encountered is the same one we encounter. Isn't that great? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God. The one who keeps his promises. <laughs> the one who can overturn even rulers. He is the one in charge. 
Clarkson, and this is an old hymn, wrote, O Father, you are sovereign in all affairs of men. No powers of death or darkness can thwart your perfect plan. All chance and change, transcending suspense in time and space, you hold your trusting children secure in your embrace. Isn't that great? He is in charge. And as he said to Moses, I am. That says it all, right? I was there, I am here, and I will be there. I am. So, when you try to balance the checkbook, when you're concerned about things health-wise, concerned about family, whether it be marital issues, children, maybe it's just this political climate we live in, remember, God said it, I am, right? I'm in charge. Father, I just thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men. Uh, Lord, you're studying your word raises questions. Some things are easier to answer than others. But Lord, at the end of the day, there are nuggets that we can clearly walk away with, that we can know with certainty. And one of those is that you are God, not Hoth, not Ra, not Osiris, not Isis, but Lord, you, God Almighty, are our King. And as Dick mentioned, you, the God Almighty, knows full well what we go through because your son came to this earth and walked it and knows full well what it means to be rejected, what it means to be met with adversity, etc. But Lord, he was faithful. Faithful in that blood that he shed covers our sin. And Lord, through his blood, we have salvation. But more than that, Lord, as well, we have a restored relationship with you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Go with these men today. Thank you for their faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you just bless them, honor them for the time they've carved out to study your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.